This episode of the Planet Microcap podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Craft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 178. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Save the date. We just announced our next virtual conference, the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event, which will be held on August 17 through 19, 2021. The website is now live, and you can find the full details on the event at conference.snn.network. Registration is now open, so click register button once you're there to receive all the updates on speakers, uh, presenting companies, sponsors, the works. So uh, I look forward to seeing you all there at the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event, August 17th through 19, 2021. Conference.snn.network is the website. I'll see you all there. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Thomas Brazil. He is the founder and CIO of 507 Capital. The Microcap universe, believe it or not, is not huge. Shocker, I know. But so many of our guests said I should meet Thomas Brazil. He looks at the weirdest of the weird, the most out there ideas. Luckily, Tom has joined me on several of the Investors Roundtable episodes, and we're finally taking the time to highlight him here on Planet Microcap. We chat about why he's a big fan of the steak and sizzle style of investing, as well as many examples of how he's utilized the strategy. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 178 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Tom Brazil. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And our guest today is the, the international man of mystery. No, it's not Austin Powers. It is, well, maybe, I don't know. He might be, maybe he's the Austin Powers of microcap, you know, he's the, right? Don Tommaso Brazil. Oh, I'll take it. Don Tommaso. That's right. He's hey. the founder and CIO of 507 Capital. Tom, what's going on, man? How, how's, how's life in Italy? Nothing much. It's actually getting a little hot. It's the summer here. I'm at the top of my house, like at the top of the house we rented, like the top bedroom, which was great in the winter. It was always warm. But now in the summer, conversely, heat rises. 
it's quite a little, a little toasty in here, Is but uh, I'll survive. I'll right, survive. Well, don't worry. We're, we're not, we're not going to keep you on the hot seat. Okay, man. We're going to ask you very oh, the hot seat. chill questions, you know, so that we can, we can let you out of here and go continue to be the Don Tomazo that we all know you want to be. So, uh, but look, this has been a long time coming. It, it, it it's, it, Look, the microcap universe is not a big universe, but I've had so many people on the pod or on the roundtable that are like, oh, yeah, you got to bring Tom on or we got to have him on the roundtable, you know, because you're seemingly either uh, out front friends with everybody or everybody happens to know you. So I'm, I'm a I'm friendly just, guy. I'm a friendly guy. It's not I, I would agree. He is. It's because I'm friendly. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, for sure. I don't. I don't. So, okay. Yeah, no, it's great to be on the pod and thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> and that's very kind of you to say, I'm, I'm basically, you know, I'm basically like, like most of the uh, micro cappers out there gainfully unemployed and probably unemployable. And as I think I said on one of the pods where we were with, with Steven, uh, with Steve was, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of like a disease, you know, you sort of are into this stuff. Um, you know, my, I think people are in microcaps, not because of microcaps. It's just, it's because of where the best deals are. You know, you're kind of like, I want to say garbage hunting, but you're sort of like, you know, maybe it's dumpster diving. I think distress is really dumpster diving, but you know, there's a lot of interesting opportunities and in special sets. If you know, for an enterprising investor, you know, the old Graham idea of being an enterprising investor. So that's why I'm down here. It's not, it's not because of like the you know, it, it's funny. I, I was making, I, I don't know if it's a good joke, but I was making a joke the other day to somebody where it's like, you know, look, there's really only two ways you get into microcap. One, your family or somebody who's a close friend or colleague introduced right. it to you to go and check out all everything. Or you did all your due diligence and you read all the books. And you're like, you know, I think I'm going to get my start in microcaps. I mean, look, I've been doing this long enough where that seems to be the two circles. And there's not a lot of in the in the circle Venn diagram kind of thing. I don't know. I don't. I, don't I think so. It. Yeah. Right. I also think it's like if you do any like quantitative screening and you don't add any like micro cap filters or you know sort of market cap filters, you'll see like at the top of the list are like really small companies, and you're kind of like, well, why is this company so cheap? And if you're speaking to someone who's like more institutional, they'll say, oh, well, that's a tiny company that you just throw that out because you know we can't only can't really buy much of that, or we're not allowed to buy things that smaller. It's OTC listed, so we can't buy that. And then, and I think the natural, like, sort of first principles response would be like, well, why not? And they're like, well, we can't really make a business out of it. Okay, that's a problem for you, but it's not a problem for the security or the guy investing in it, right? So I think that's why they exist. It's not, they're not aberrations. They're not value traps. And, and you know, I see people, like, talk about factors where they sort of, like, add in, well, you know, Mike, you know, like, oh, small cap this. And they, it, it's just kind of plainly obvious that the stuff is much cheaper, I mean, the quid pro quo is that they're probably less liquid. And if you have real amounts of money as a if family office or just a wealthy individual or an institution, it's very hard to make a business out of it or to buy, you know, more than a million bucks. I was talking to my broker the other day. I said, oh, I really like this one. I want to start buying it. He said, just do you know, there's only, you can only buy like maybe $5,000 a day. I was like, oh, right. Okay. We'll start buying it. You know, so, <laughs> so that kind of thing is good. And I think, you know, who says this is, um, Oh, now his name, you know, uh, one up, not one up on Wall Street. Help me out, help me out, help me out. Greenblatt says like, you know, the great thing about, you know, getting good at special situations is you normally make money and then you make money and you can't do it anymore because you get too big, you know, and, and he's, he's not yeah. wrong. You know, you sort of like, even, even I'll have people talk to me, they'll call me or they'll email me or, you know, I love Twitter. Someone's on Twitter, even DM me like a $4 million stock. And I'm like, Hey, that's really cool. I mean, Maybe I can buy a hundred thousand dollars of this. Not not to say that I'm not willing to be illiquid. It's just how much is actually out there. Like what's the free float? And then if there's a rights plan, like my favorite is when you'll see a five million dollar stock, Bobby. I'm sure you've got, and then it'll have a three eighty two plan, right? So you can't go above five. So it's a five million. You can't go above five. So then you know what's the max position? Is that two fifty, two hundred fifty thousand dollars? So basically, the max position is two fifty, and so. I always, I always, I always joke that like, you know, hedge fund, you know, need not apply because like only <laughs> PA. And what I'm, what's interesting as well is you find a lot of good work. So a lot of smart guys are either in hedge funds or just investors in general on the side. They're down here doing a lot of decent work on companies. Um, but anyway, I digress. Well, what do you want to talk about? I, you know, I, I figured I'm having you on, this is our first one-on-one -on -one interview, and I don't even know how you got to where you're at today. 
You know, we just, we went right from like having met to best friends without like kind of the in, like, yeah, we didn't really kind of do the in-between part where we were, you know, like get to know each I'll other. I'll some background. You know? So how, what's going on? How, how did you get, how did no foreplay? the capital stuff? No, no, no foreplay. foreplay. We're just, we're just going, we're going right digging in deep. Okay. Yeah. I don't so, want to know your favorite uh, sports team. I just want to know the background. All right. I mean, I don't know why. I don't, I'm, I'm sure. I don't know. Okay. I'll try to be as brutally honest as possible. Uh, cause I feel like that's the only way to get to, uh, to, to real valuable insight, hopefully, but which is, so I ran a hedge fund for like eight years before I can go further back. I was born in night. No. Um, but I ran a hedge fund for about eight years called BE capital. That was okay. Successful. I learned a lot about investing. I, I highly recommend anyone that wants to be an emerging manager, launch a fund it will be very hard to raise capital. And there are lots of reasons for that. And anybody that wants to hear about it can DM me or whatever. You can reach out to me. I, but I fully. You will learn so much about yourself, about investing, about business, starting your own company, and, and a smart starting a small hedge fund, trying to be an emerging manager is a great way to do it. So I learned tons about investing. Um, God bless the LPs that gave me money because I really didn't know what I was doing from a lot of standpoints. Um, uh, so so let me go into that. So I spent eight years doing that, and then I shut that down and did uh, started five hundred seven. We're really working directly with family offices. My sort of day job, quote unquote, is um, looking for sort of private distressed opportunities, generally credit. So we were doing dip loans, alternative loans. We do a lot of, we run a pretty sizable bankruptcy trade claim book for them. What are bankruptcy trade claims? This is busted AR, you know, uh, you know, let's say Bobby, you have a company that, you know, you, well, I don't think you do this, but they do a sponsored video with you and you do some sponsored content. They owe you $10,000 company goes under, they, you know, you have this, this accounts receivable for 10 grand. We'll buy that for, two, three, four, five, six grand, depending upon the recovery and bankruptcy. And we're basically sort of factoring the invoice. We're, we're buying it for five, hoping to make 10, or we're buying it for six to make eight or whatever, uh, depending upon a prime example would be Hertz. Hertz files for bankruptcy. It's now 100% big uh, case. We're buying claims, you know, 80, 90 cents on the dollar to make a dollar in hopefully less than six months. So that's a very high return business. Their taxes on it can be, you know, it's all kind of short-term cap gains. So, so, so the it says the tax drag and it's a lot of work. So that's my day job. And of course, I still like looking for special set equities and stuff like that. And I do that with my own money. Um, and I have a whole a whole lot of money in the stress stuff we do with the family offices we work with, because of course they require that. So how did I get there? I mean, my parents were bankruptcy lawyers. I grew up sort of a middle-class kid in Savannah, Georgia. And uh, when I launched my fund, you know, I was trying to do everything. I thought I wanted to be like, you know, everyone wants to be Warren Buffett or I should say everybody, but I wanted to be Warren Buffett and I was going to launch a Buffett style partnership. And, you know, the feedback initially was like, well, Tom, no offense. Like that was 50 years ago. Like, you know, no one does that anymore. Now everybody specializes in something. So I kind of said, man, nah, you know, I think I know what I'm doing. I'm going to do whatever I want. So I was doing special set equity, value equity and distressed. When I looked at the attribution of returns, by far the most the highest returns are really coming from the distressed stuff, basically because the large distressed funds just kind of this kind of it's kind of nice when we were talking about uh, micro caps and the opportunities. Often run distressed is very hard to scale. You know, if you're doing sub ten million dollar deals, sub five million dollar deals, buying small accounts receivable, and you're doing it in, in you know at some scale, you know, have a book of I don't know, call it 10, 20, 30, or fifty million dollars of, of, of trade claims. That's very hard for a large you know, firm to make money at. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I mean, if you run a billion dollar plus or a multi-billion dollar multi, multi-strat fund or a distressed fund, you know, the smartest guys, they get there and then a hundred million dollars at work in a, a bunch of small deals is like, you know, can I curse? It's just not worth their time. So, so that say they, they made so much money, they move on and that leaves more opportunity for you. Um, so what else did you want me to Let's see background on myself. Yeah. So that's, that's basically it. I mean, and, and I, I would invest money. I've said this before on a panel, so I feel bad saying again, but I don't think I'm the world's best investor by a country mile. <laughs> and I just look a lot of stuff. I just try to look as much stuff as possible. And I try to use the heuristics that over time have worked for me. And for me, one of the biggest things in my philosophy, Bobby, and then I will have questions because I mean, I, I don't know, man. I don't want to like keep going, man. I'm not going to stop you. Keep going. This is one, good. Of, one of the for me, I am not 
I almost want to say I'm not a value investor because I don't want to be in the club. I think it's costly to be in the club. It's costly to be in that comfort. For me, I'm a steak and sizzle guy. And that is a quote from uh, steak and sizzle is, uh, of course, stolen. Everything, all, all my ideas are stolen. Uh, it's taken from um, Michael Price. And Michael Price likes to say, I want a good valuation. And I want some serious sizzle to it. And I, want, I don't want to pay for the sizzle. And I've really tried to apply that philosophy. And that's been the, the most return for me. And the ideas that have worked have been those kind where I don't get hurt too bad if it doesn't, if my sort of thesis doesn't play out. But if it does work out, I can make, I mean, unconscionable multiples of my money. And those have been the best ones for me. Other people have different strategies um, that have worked. It's, I guess, an offensive strategy compared to a more defensive strategy. And I think there are lots of approaches and philosophies that work. You have to find the one that works best for you. So can I can I go through one example that might like highlight like a, okay. Keep going. Yeah, I'm so, not going to stop it. So again, I want to be is like open so that people really get, because I hate it when people give like generalities and you're just like, what does that even, what does that mean? I don't know what the guy's talking about. So one of the one of the biggest things that's worked out for me was I started buying these Mt. Gox bankruptcy claims years ago, and at the time, Mt. Gox was just to give some background. It was a cryptocurrency exchange that went under in 2014. It was the largest exchange. It was 70 percent plus of the volume. I mean, I've done lots of other stuff, but, and actually, the highest IRR is probably a different trade. But I'll go through this one because it's it, it's being illustrative of this idea. When we were first buying claims, um, Bitcoin was at $300 a claim and we were buying them for 100. The trade wasn't that interesting because you were basically just buying crypto at a third of, of, of the price. This is back in 2000 and I can't remember, 16, I want to say. Um, sorry, I keep getting notifications that I have to get rid of so I can see you, Bobby. Um, I should have turned it off before. Actually, maybe I can, but whatever. So I started buying them. Um, a third of the work at value. We thought I thought this is really interesting because if you think about it, like if this really works, you're getting three times this magnification. Now I'm not going to put my whole portfolio in this, but if you made this like five percent of your portfolio, and people are right and it goes up 100x, like crypto guys are right, well shoot, you're going to make 300x. That's really interesting. You know, I'm getting, I'm basically like taking the if you had a distribution, if you didn't know the the distribution, and then you take it and you go like put it all in your favor by like taking all the expected values and increasing them by the structure of the trade. I thought that was super interesting. So I started doing that a little bit. I pitched it to a number of hedge funds in New York. I'd actually, you'll, Bobby, you'll like this. So the first person I pitched this to was working at a shop. He won't remember any of this and he won't listen to the podcast. So I'll, so I'll say it. It was a, a large distress firm. And I remember I remember exactly where I was, I was uh, and I was, I, was, I was talking to him about it. And he said, I said, well, you know, there's this bankrupt, you know, uh, there's this bankrupt uh, cryptocurrency exchange. He said, cryptocurrency? And I was like, well, I'm buying claims. He said, cryptocurrency? And I was like, yeah, cryptocurrency. He's like, he said, you mean like Bitcoin? And I was like, yes, Bitcoin. And he was like, ah, he just sat back in his chair and he was like, that is the funniest thing I have heard all week. You want me to buy Bitcoin, Tom? And I was like, no, 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 let me explain. Let me explain. But, you know, anyway, that, that you get a lot of that in larger institutions where there's principal agent issues, just like in a, a bigger corporate or a corporation where there's not a lot of stock ownership. So mm -hmm. fast forward, there was the best time to put on the trade was when the trustee had uh, sold a lot, uh, a decent amount of crypto and basically raised cash. And we were able to buy the claims under the cash value and we were getting the crypto for free. That was the best time to put the trade on. That was like 2018 before the case flipped from like a pure liquidation to what's called a civil rehabilitation. So long story short is I was pitching this to everybody to buy into this trade. And there were some special set guys that were like, hey, if you can get me the crypto for free, I'll put this on. So they really saw like me, the convexity of the trade. Um, but a lot of them, I find, and I find this too, even with special sit guys and microcap guys, they get a little too fixated on when the price they heard about the trade in and what they have to pay. You know, they they're like, oh well, I heard about this at five dollars. It's now at seven. I can't buy it at seven. And then they missed the move from seven to thirty. And I'm like, well, you know, the stock doesn't care that you found out about it at five. So so you 
So, so I, I think people get very anchored to that. So we bought a lot. I bought a lot personally. I put just an enormous amount of capital, basically all of my net worth into these claims. And also, uh, you know, we, we've, we were able to get a family office on board. And that's worked out to be, you know, of course, because of crypto, even with the big pullback, an enormous, enormously profitable trade. We actually made more on my principal investments than on the promote on 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 that we got from the family office, and we now buy them for a large crypto hedge fund. But I mean, you know, and, and it doesn't matter how much you made. It's really just about the generalization of this is what you're always looking for. I mean, to me, I'm always looking for a mispriced bet. That's all I really care about. I think I was on Toby's podcast like two years ago. Yep. You know, and he and we and I was talking to him, and he was. I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of looking for like the set setup, and I kept saying setup because I remember listening to it, and I was like, why do I keep saying setup? To me, it's really just like, am I getting ridiculously compensated for this risk? I feel like sometimes in in, in my in my approach compared to other people's is the guys will say, well, you could lose money on that. And I'm like, I know I could lose money, but the question I'm asking is, do, am I getting compensated for potentially losing that money? So that's my approach, and I guess in a nutshell, is I'm willing to take risk if I'm getting compensated, and it you know it works. Of course, sometimes you get bludgeoned by by this kind of approach, but I you know it's worked for me, and you know luckily I've had some that have worked out, and uh, I don't think it's just about being like the world's best analyzer of businesses, and and but I do it does help to know a decent amount, and it does help to do due diligence. Don't get me wrong. It also helps for me, I think the most valuable uh, information, like Bobby, you know, you talk to a lot of companies, you actually talk to management. I'm not saying talk to management, but picking up the phone and getting scuttlebutt, you know, I mean, it's just amazing to me that you'll meet guys and they'll, they'll be like spreadsheeting, spreadsheeting, spreadsheeting. And, you know, there's so much more value in scuttlebutt. You know, and I guess some people refer to it as channel checking, but it's not just channel checking; it's just scuttlebutt. Um, and anyway, so that's that's kind of how I would approach it. Hey, Ask Tom, me for, something. No, no, that was. Hey, look, that, please. When you're cooking, let, Tom. When you're cooking, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let you stop. You know, but um, so hey, hey. so one of the funniest introductions to you that I had was from Gary and Eric from, you know, the hosts of in the market trenches and the best, who the are best they again? No, yeah, they're who? Good friends. yeah, yeah, go ahead. The best. And so they, you yeah, know, they good. said, look, when you get Tom on for the round table for anything, you know, this is, he looks at the strangest, weirdest stuff ever, you know? And I'm, and, and the thing that I always go back when I think about like, whenever you're going to be on, oh, you guys the, look at weird shit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we look at weird stuff, but then like when we actually hear about, you know, then you talk about Mt. Gox bankruptcy claims. You're like, all right, that's just fucking. No, no, but distress. I use distress as a tool to try to get the stake and sizzle. But the idea is stake and sizzle. Like I just put on this Gettikers trade, basically after the placement. The Nantai, I just happened to. I mean, my for me, I don't like screening. I mean, the screens are fine. I love getting ideas from guys that are looking at securities. I love watching the price. If I see something down 20% or 80%, I'm like, whoa, what happened? Like for me, I want to run to the fire and figure out if, you know, they're going to be able to put it out. And if they can, like that can be an interesting situation. But so yeah, the, so why, why do they say that? Go ahead. Well, so what are the things that you look for then when you see that fire? And you and you, what are some of the questions or things that you look for there? I'm like, like yes, okay. fire's not as bad as everyone says. Yeah, no. like what? Like, how do you judge how strong the hose is or how good the the water pressure is to to put this fire out? Um, you know, I I don't, I don't always know. Most times it's a pass because I can't figure it out. You know, mm. sometimes, most of the times, I think there's some some big mistakes I see people make is. They, they, people buy meh securities. Like why? Like you don't have to buy all this stuff. Like you, you, you can just wait, just, just own cash. And then if you're like, oh, I really like this, then buy. Like you don't, you don't have to do anything. You know, if you run money as a, as a hedge fund or a mutual fund or, or family office or something, and you have to put money to work, I understand there's probably pressure to put money to work. But if you're talking about people in your PA or just guys looking at their, you know, just trying to, you know, compound their money or just, you know, just wait, just don't swing. So uh, for me, if I see a mispriced bet, it just has to be a matter of 
you know, quantitative and qualitative, like looking at the setups. I mean, so, I mean, okay. For myself, like day to day, I love using Twitter. I of course still use, you know, valuation screen. I love just trolling on net nets. I love trolling backwater markets. Like recently I was talking with a few friends about Italian small cap markets. Cause there's actually a lot of Italian listed companies. So some certain jurisdictions have a lot of small caps. It's not about small caps. It's about getting a good deal. So I will look at larger caps compared to most, maybe some of the people that, that just do small caps. Um, let's see what else. I will buy expensive securities that I think are cheap compared to uh, relative value. I'm, I'm not scared of that. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to say like, I remember, what was it? We work with private at $10 billion valuation and uh, uh, help me out. The one that's public. It was uh, the Regis. I don't know the actual parent's name, but it, but that's probably their, probably their problem. They have like five times the size of offices, but they were like at a 10th of the valuation. And I was like, Oh my God, who's not looking at this trade? You know? So to me, I'll read the paper. To me, you can read the paper and find stuff. I love keying around special events. Everyone should set up Google alerts. You know, spinoffs are fine. My favorite actually is CEO change. Uh, that's my favorite. Interesting. So anybody wants, yeah, CEO change is by far my favorite, by far. And it costs you nothing, dude. Like set up a Google alert, change CEO. You, you, can, you can have it in, in three different ways. You can have it like CEO change, change CEO, like, you know, chief financial officer or chief executive officer leaves, uh, you know, CFO leaves, you can, and that way you'll get the, the stuff and you'll find a lot of times there's nothing there, but it takes five seconds to look through them and you can see which companies are, are public. All right. So, you know, you know me, you know, I interview a ton of management teams, you know, for what we do at SNN. So, you know, I'm going to yeah. ask you a follow-up question here because this is, this is fascinating. So, are, so what do you, are, are is the trade Why? that you're- well, no, not why. Well, okay, why? Let's start why, and then we'll and then we'll dig deeper into that. Because it can't be okay. I guess I am kind of screening it, but it's not quantitative. <laughs> DFA and all these factor guys like can't really use it. Although I, I'm sure some people use. A lot, I think a lot of activists use uh, CEO change. Um, you know, it's one of those things. It's sort of speed to see change in a company. If a company is cheap and you get a new CEO. And a large shareholder is like, look, we just want to sell the company. The new CEO might listen. You just, it, it's kind of like having a baby. It's like, hey, you, you know, people are more, more likely to change their buying habits when they have kids. That's why like you're ridiculously marketed to when you have a baby. And it, the same thing's true, I think, of like a company you sort of have this like sea change going on. It's like, okay, activists are now looking at it because they're like, oh, new CEO, maybe we can push on an open door here. Get this guy to put the company up for sale, or get him to spin off that comp that that sub. He should have always spun off, or whatever, uh, or get him to rationalize expenses. He can blame everything on the guy that just left. You know, the guy that he used to work for. Oh, that guy's a bum. That guy's such a bum. You know, he's a wa- time waster, money waster, bum. And you know, it's just it's just a good. So you have all that fervor, and then you know, I just think it's easy to change strategy. I think for me, one of the biggest problems with companies is just like they're just not very dynamic, you know, they're, they're not run like in that very sort of creative destruction venture capitalist. I mean, that's why like, you know, I know when compound bros like talk about, you know, like great cultures, they're probably right. Like people with dynamic cultures probably will continue to innovate, whether it's like Amazon and Jeff Bezos and all the people that came up from him or, or Tim Cook and Apple and things like that. These are amazing companies, but like, I'm not going to pay those multiples. And I don't think I have much of an edge looking at them because there's a gazillion people looking at them, but that's fine. You know, people can buy them and, you know, make 10%. I don't think you're getting the 20% club um, or higher doing that kind of stuff. But, you know, hey, what do I know? Uh, yeah, that's my approach. What else are you going to ask about it? Well, no, I mean, like it, it's it, it's an interesting strategy because you're right. You know, most people would rather, you know, invest in a company where they hope that the culture stays the same and you get that compounder over time. And, you know, you want to make sure that whoever you're investing in that management team is, you know, or, or at least the CEO is going to be there for more than just five years. You know, they're not just a hired gun kind of thing. But well, I mean, yeah, I just think I just think I just think that like also sometimes like you'll see. CEO will come in, stock will sell off, largest shareholder will blow out of it because they were there because of the old CEO. Now the stock's gone from three to four, 150, right. right? New CEO gone to 150, company could be in play or maybe you don't even need it to be in play because now it's very cheap. But you, th- these are very discrete events and you kind of have to be ready to move. 
So like for me as well, like I really feel like my investment approach, or at least my style, my sort of approach is very like preparation, meaning opportunity. Like you're doing work, you're not swinging, you're kind of like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then like something comes across the plate and you're just like, oh man, and you just swing. And, 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 well, but I mean, I guess it is fat pitch, but I would, the stuff that I do, I don't think it'd be appropriate the aggressiveness, which was what I bring to it, I don't think would be appropriate for a fund with outside capital. Um, so I have a huge advantage. Even guys in their PA, you have a huge advantage, guys and girls. You have a huge advantage because you don't have to, who cares if you have a 30% drawdown? Like that's, it's your money. Like, you know, the, you, you, so anyway. All right, um, go ahead. I, I, I'd love to hear an example of this. You know, what, what, tell, tell, give us, you got this story time. Give us a story time uh, where you saw that it came across the screen, you got the Google alert, CEO management change, CFO something, and you said, oh, I've been watching this company forever, like, here we go, you know, time. I'm not time watching it forever, but I saw it last year. I saw sell side report. It's like, I don't understand people that won't take in information from alternative sources. Like sell sides reports are great because they'll give you the quick and dirty summary of how the market's thinking about a security. Talking with management's great because they'll give you the quick pitch on like why you should buy their stock. Of course, it's not like, you know, if someone's selling you a car and they have an incentive to sell you the car, you're like, okay, well, that's really great. Let me just go online and make sure all that's true, right? The same thing is like if a company is pitching you, you're like, oh, that's interesting. They claim that their comps are double them and that they're growing faster. Oh, I'll have to like look this company up later. So you have to do some due diligence. It's not, uh, but let's see, one that one where like I watched the company for a while and then management changed. I can't remember the specific name. It was called Neuro something. It was a net net and then the, then the management changed and it was a net net management change and uh, the company was always considered cheap and a, and, a, and, a, and a takeout target. So when I saw it, I was, I was like, oh my God, this is like such a nice little setup. He's going to cut costs. He knows the company's in play if he doesn't get the stock price up. And, and, uh, and, and it was basically a net net. Um, so that's stuff like that, I think. It happens all the time. Or maybe one that you weren't following for a while, you know, just one that happened to, you know, you. Well, one, one that I, and I hate to tell stuff like this because it makes it seem like everything is like goes to the moon. But, but one that I, the thing I made the most money on ever was I had researched this company called uh, Orient Express Group. Uh, and I'd stayed at one of the hotels and I was like, you know, everywhere I go, by the way, here's another great uh, a pro tip because I'm not a pro, but uh, thing that I like to do is I always Google, man. And you do, you probably do this too, Bobby. I always Google like my kid's toy or like, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. This company, oh, it's owned by this company. This company's public. Well, it's like a $50 million company. So I will Google everything. I'm in a restaurant. And well, I won't talk about restaurants, but I will Google everything and be like, oh, this company's owned by this company, which is like only a $100 million company. That's quite interesting. So I'm always Googling like a company or a product or something to see if it's public or owned by I'm a smaller a, I'm public a company. I'm a label guy. I'm always looking at the labels. I'm like, oh, what? Right? Wait, I, you know, someone should do, you know what someone should do? That'd be a really cool idea is like every product you could like scan it. You know, like you can scan wine. They have, the, they have those like apps where you can scan the wine. It'll tell you how good it is or whatever. They should do that for like public companies. Because if you could scan it, at, like with a QR, they're not a QR code, but a picture and then it would analyze it and tell you, oh, it's owned by this company, which is actually public or owned by this private family. Like, that'd be really cool. Anyway. That'd be pretty dumb. All right, on the story. Okay, so on this one, so I'd stayed in a hotel. I read the biography because I was super, because it was a public company. I learned, oh, this hotel is owned by a public company. And I did some work on it. This is like 2000 and gosh, dude, I'm not gonna remember. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm getting old. I'm sort of forgetting years. So I stayed at a hotel, I thought it was interesting. It was called Orange Express Group. It was before it changed its, its name to Belmont. And I did a lot of work and it was always like a, you'll run across companies like this, like a jewel box company, you know, like a great company, but like because of corporate governance or corporate structure, like it'll always be cheap. You know, you hear that story. So there were a bunch of value guys that had been in it for years. And I had no idea why they owned it because it was it was like, why would you own the thing? Like, clearly, it's just just an ice cube, but it's not melting. It's actually OK because it was luxury hotels. So um, and then, you know, literally, so I read the biography. I learned all about the company. And really what the issue was from a corporate governance standpoint is the marquee asset had a, a ROFO, like a right of first refusal to the founder. So you could never sell the company unless you had the approval from the founder, because who's going to buy a, a luxury hotel group where 
the it was the Hotel Cipriani in Venice, which Bobby, I'm sure you've been to. Uh, I have not had the pleasure of staying at the Cipriani in Venice. Oh, God, uh, I've been to Cipriani. Don Don Kraft has been at the Cipriani. Don Kraft. All right. Yeah. So uh, when you come to Italy, we'll we'll go to Venice <laughs> or something. So uh, that'd be fun. I've actually never been. So anyway, so me neither. Uh, me neither. Yeah, there you go. Let's let's take the wives. Let's do this. Yeah, let's go. Um, I'm sure it's appropriate for uh, what, a 17 month old, and I've got a three year old. I'm sure they'll love us in the restaurants. They like, would, what's that screaming? Oh, they would absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> they brought their kids. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, so anyway, so I read the guy's biography. I learned all about the company. Learned about the like the jewel box nature of the business. Then I'm literally just sitting at my computer and across like BAM SEC, which I think everyone should use because it's $35 a month and it's fantastic because uh, it gives you updates on all the all the filings and you can save stuff and you can search filings. Um, and anyway, so it came across and AK was filed and AK basically was a termination of this ROFO where the founder was giving the ROFO back for $25 million payment. And there was another little part of it where it said, if we sell the company within six months, he gets another $25 million. And I was like, wait a second. I read this guy's autobiography. I said biography, but it's an autobiography. The chairman of the board was his old personal lawyer. <laughs> you think his old buddy's not going to give him an extra 25? Oh, by the way, everyone on the board, this was always a complaint from corporate governance, were friends of his, you know, golfing buddies or somebody he knew from the industry, which I mean, sometimes can be bad but also like it's kind of natural how do you meet people like how do i meet people in my own work so like probably someone that i know who has experience in this i'll bring on to my board or i'll suggest it for as a board membership you know it's not like pepsico where they're doing like a hundred you know they're going to recruiter to find a board member um so anyway so when this happened i was like this company is definitely in play so on the 8k i bought pretty pretty aggressively, like I had 30,000, I'll walk you through the numbers, but I, but I, I only share it to be open. I was about $30,000 worth of options because that's really all I had in my PA. So I took the took it on uh, 30,000 options. They were like, I think I bought two months out, which I didn't even need to buy two months out. Literally like 15 days later, they announced strategic alternatives. And the stock goes from 10 to like 13 or something. And so now my... I can't remember what the exact math was, but my $30,000 is now $300,000 or 300, 350. So now I'm, the whole, the whole idea was, and I'll, I, to me, it's a very stake at stake. And I can't believe I'm going to the story in this detail. I'm sorry, Bobby. Uh, do you want me do to like, apologize. Up? No, go, up? go, go. Uh, okay. Full detail. So, People love it. So I had the 300, 350, and I started rolling into other options. And I was speaking to my friends about the position. And I was telling a lot of people like, Hey, I think this thing is really going to go off with a two in front of it. Like this thing is, you know, because if you do the math on the valuations for these kind of hotels, like you could get some serious interest. Uh, I think in the proxy, some someone that's like a, a proxy nerd can go look it up. I think like 60 or 70 bids were received for this just to show you how much interest there was. But everybody knew this. It was it was so plainly obvious. It's just, you know, I think most people just bought the stock and they also had, didn't know about the ROFO being triggered if it was sold within six months. So I was planning it to roll out over the full six months to try to buy really cheap, you know, sort of implied ball. I also thought the price was going to be a lot higher than people or the market maybe thought. So I did that. Um, the stock slowly drifted from like 13 to I want to say like 17 or 18. So every time I was rolling the options, I was actually making money. So I was like, oh man, this is easy. And then in November, I got whacked pretty hard. And I think I lost like $100,000 on the options because uh, I had the 20 strikes and I was only paying like, I can't remember, 50 cents or something. And it had to be cheaper than that, but it's something like that, 30 cents, 50 cents. So I roll, I was roll, I rolled the Decembers and in December 23rd, it came across the tape, LVMH offered 25 bucks a share. And I had the 20 strikes that I paid like 30 cents for and like $100,000 with them or something. So I can't do the math, but I know it, it ended up being about $1.8 million because I had, I guess I kept rolling it. So the capital kept going up and, but, but I think back on that story and to me, like, of course I could have taken a bit of a bludgeon if a big bid didn't come across. And I think 25 is actually low. I think they could have got higher bids, but it was sort of a stake and sizzle. It was kind of like preparation meeting opportunity. 
it was doing things that others can't do because a big hedge fund isn't going to take some huge position and options. Um, you know, they, they would, but it would only be like 3% of their portfolio, you know, like 100 basis points, 500 basis points. And so you get, you could take advantage of that in your PA, you know, like who cares if you're down 10%? Like, you know, I'm sorry. Like if, if, if you're really trying to compound your money, like you have to be willing to take some risk and you, you can't just, you know, this, I see, I hear people's personal portfolios and I'm like, they're like 3%, 3%, 5%. I'm like, why do you even bother? Like, just wait, just wait for something good. And, and, you know, I don't have a problem with someone having 10 positions, but when someone has like more than that in their PA, I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, you're not like a professional money manager. Like, well, you're worried about like a two basis point move. I don't know. It's just my approach versus others. Okay. If someone wants to, you know, anyway, I'll be quiet. What else? Bobby, move on. Cause I've been talking too long about this. No, I'm no, like, I, I'm terrible that, for your podcast. Please. People are very, I, I, I know I just very much enjoyed that story and hearing the ins and outs for me. It's, it's because you're, you're kind of the first one on here to talk about this, the idea of the steak and sizzle. You know, in, at least in those terms, everybody oh, yeah? has a ver- has a version of it. I'm sure you know you want to see something that you know is good value, but then it has this sizzle factor to it, right? You know, well, so- I get guys here ask a question, but I get guys no, 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 reach go. out about they they talk they reach out about not about special sits, they reach out about some value name, and I'm like, hey, that's really cool, but that's actually a really shitty business, man. Oh, sorry. I just cursed. I tried really hard. Not no, to you're fine. Full time. Not cursed. And, <laughs> and I'm just like, why? Like, okay, maybe it goes up 30%. Like you still own a crappy business. Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't know. So I just have a problem when there's like no sizzle and I'm just like, okay, maybe you make double your money. But that's not it to say that, like, that, but that's not to say a potential stake and sizzle story isn't talking about a business that's relatively boring. I mean, right? Like, Oh it, yeah, they could be boring. There's a big difference between like boring and, and bad business. You know, you could, I mean, Peter Lynch will tell you like boring business are his favorite, right? Like, uh, yeah, like, no, no, no. Boring in the sense of like, you never heard of it and it's not growing at some ridiculous rate, but the valuation's there and you know, you, you can find a way to express it. Maybe it's the, the stock, maybe I mean, if it's a bankruptcy, maybe there's in the credit side, um, or maybe it's even in warrants. So maybe, maybe in the bankruptcy, somebody got warrants. Now the warrants are just like penny warrants out there. And you really think this thing's going to double. And so you can buy warrants for three cents. Like, I just think there's opportunity everywhere. You just have to get, you know, be as creative as possible about ex- how to express it and what you can do and just dig, 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 dig. But you got to enjoy it, Bobby. Cause I mean, this is, you know how this is. I mean, there's a ton of dry holes. Like you're going to spend all this time on a company. And mm-hmm. if you're really honest with yourself after a week, you're like, I mean, I don't know. And then you have to like move on. Well, I think the funniest thing in speaking of loving it and just the being obsessed with it, I think we talked about it on the investing in the obscure panel that you were on, how like, you know, look, if you're not getting texts from Stephen Keel at 2 a.m. <laughs> and and you're not texting him back about ideas and what's going on in the markets, you know, you might not be obsessed, you know, which is okay. You know, there's, there's various strategies if you don't have that this same level of obsession, but I mean, let's say there's a few retail people or or just there's investors on here that not, not to say they aren't as obsessed, but maybe they haven't been exposed to the type of special situations or distress or have this level of, of, of interest in that, that you do, Um, you know, but maybe it's just because they haven't, they haven't gotten exposure to it. You know, like how do you, how do you help somebody that may be obsessed with investing or even microcaps specifically, but getting them to the point of like, all right, I want to be at Tom's level, you know, like what, what do you, what, like, what do you do to help that, that conspire? Uh, yeah. You, 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 you get out on the field and you get your ass kicked around. I felt the need <laughs> to curse there. Uh, no, I mean, you really do kind of like Bobby. I mean, you probably, you know, I know you spent a lot of time on the podcast and doing interviews, but you also have your PA and I'm sure that, uh, you know, by the way, everything I've mentioned, I have owned, I was supposed to give that disclosure. Sorry, Bobby. Uh, Bobby's gonna Bobby's gonna like tattoo it to like the screen. Don't you know, worry, I Tom, had it, Tom I had owns it. this. I, I had it all right here. I had Hertz, the Goad you even mentioned, Namtai, or yeah, did I? Okay. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So all those I've owned or own. I mean, most of them are done. They're special situations, but um, and, and I think it's 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 uh, you have to spend a lot of time in the market because I do meet a lot of guys that are very good at doing the analysis, but they're very bad at position sizing and they're very bad at knowing when to sort of really go in and look 
I'm not the end all be all of investing. There are guys that are way smarter than me. I'm just saying for myself, when I really find something, I go in pretty hard because that's how I've done the best. And, you know, sometimes offense is the best defense in these things. And they're just different approaches for different people. And it, it can be a little gut wrenching to take, you know, decent drawdowns. I, you know, I actually, frankly, have not had huge drawdowns. I mean, when I was running my fund, I had a 28% drawdown in three month period. And you would have thought that like I had, you know, uh, I don't even know. I thought my LPs were going to like, you know, what is it? Like quarter you, whatever the phrase is. I thought they were going to, there's going to be a lynching or something. Uh, but you know, you can't, that's, that's when you run a fund, it's, it's very different. It's outside money. You have to be able to really explain yourself, communicate. Well, I'm not sure I'm the world's best communicator. Um, and that was tough because I think a lot of it is communicating the strategy, finding like-minded people, you know, and also getting lucky, you know, with vintages, you know, my friend, do you know, Shai Dardashti? It's been a while. I don't know. He used to work at MOI and he and manual of ideas. And he was like, you know, if you look at special sit managers who are like big, like billion dollar plus managers, they all kind of come from the same vintage years, which makes sense. And I'm sure there's some empirical research on this, but like all strategies, like a lot of the, the those quote unquote great track records are going to come from vintages. You know, like the best VC guys are going to come from like a cohort of vintages and the same with PE and the same with, with like public market, either value or garb and things like that. Like, I mean, I'm sure uh whatever kathy wood is a great investor but you have to admit like you know her cohort you know where she's coming into the market and where we are in the markets helps a lot uh so you know well tom you know because i get the sense from you like from from not just this interview but from your the roundtables that you've participated in is that you have this nature about you where like the risk Dude, and, and, dude, and when I was a going kid, offense. when I was a kid, no, no. When I was a kid, I used to, my, my parents were bankruptcy lawyers. I used to sit in bankruptcy court waiting for my mom to get out. We used to, we used to go and be like, oh, this, this, like, this thing is this, this, like, I remember when I was a kid with baseball cards, baseball card shop was closed. Everything in here is for sale for $3,000. Like, do you want to buy it? Like we should, buy, you know, this is a kind of like, so I had a little bit of that as a kid. And uh, so it's so like economic dumpster diving. But you know, mm. ask your question. But I mean, I kind of grew up with that a little bit of that mindset. Like I used to go to HUD auctions as a kid, and, and I actually did flip a HUD house. Uh, I don't know if it was profitable. I, I'm not sure what my parents were thinking. I mean, honestly, I, I think back, and I remember once my brother was we were doing our own demo, and you know, like you have to like you know you do your own demolition, and uh, my brother and I were like cutting cabinets off the wall and like cabinets falling down almost on us. I'm just like, well, my parents must have really been yeah need a head examined but anyway what was the question no no i, I when, no, when the did question, it become more steak and sizzle well no like what for i'm just asking like just characteristic the characteristic trait you know it just you you give the vibe that it's more about the love of the game than really you know i lost yeah okay you know like it, it no it's, no but it's pretty look, fascinating the outcomes the outcomes don't matter in my mind the outcomes don't matter at all if you did a dumb trade and you made money i really don't give a shit <laughs> like i think there's the again it's kind of like a setup like how beautiful was the setup did you take advantage of it uh and did you sort of you know bet big when it was time to bet big like i think that that to me that's how i kind of view things and you know i see guys that make a lot on a trade or an investment we can say investment if everyone wants to make it sound polished and i think that it's <laughs> i think it's you know good on them good on them i mean and, you know, seeing things before other people is, is great. You know, seeing around, if you can see around a corner because you know a lot about a space, that's fantastic. I'm not that smart. I really have to just stick to financial stuff, you know. So so I'm not a domain expert. And you're usually it's a technical dynamic that's making a security very cheap, right? Like 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 Namtai, which I owned. Yeah, I'm going to say I didn't, I don't own anymore. I guess I should say that. Uh, that Steve Keel and I were talking about these were people getting shaken out of a story and they were kind of spooked by it. And some special sit guys came in. And then when things got a little hairy, anybody that was a deep value guy that owned the stock was just like, I told you these guys are going to screw us. I'm out of this name. And the stock got way cheap. And that's the, be the beauty of public markets is you can take advantage of the marginal buyer and seller. You could never, ever buy that stack of real estate for five bucks a share when we were buying it. 
And that's what you can get in the public markets. And then if Steve, like, I shouldn't speak for him, but there are a lot of people, maybe Steve included, I don't know, talk to Steve, who were expressing it through options and they crushed it. I should have, I should have frankly bought options, but um, I was just too busy with other work. But it, you know, that's, that's me. And the steak and sizzle, by the way, there's a great interview with Michael Price. That's who people should really listen to. Uh, at, uh, I think it's at, uh, you know, Columbia, might have been NYU actually. And he, sh- he walked you through this idea of steak and sizzle. So he sort of walked you through like, well, this company just got bought for 10 times. This company is trading for four times. An activist just showed up. It's actually a better business, but they need to break off the businesses. So if you get rid of the European division, the American division, actually a better business than the one that just sold for 10 times. So this kind of idea of, you know, and in and, and him as well, like, company was cheap. Now it's being sold. It's being sold at cheaper than the comp. Maybe they get a bump, maybe it breaks, but instead of when the, when the, if the merger breaks it going down, it goes up. Like I know a lot of guys are in this home thing, you know, I think the symbol is uh, home. It's H O M E. And I totally love that trade. I wish there were options. Uh, they're, they're, they're the, the option guys have gotten out of it. You, you could potentially buy it. Um, I don't own it full disclosure, uh, but I've been considering it. But you know, I, I just think that I, I just think that that's that's a fun and uh, profitable way that I, I do things. I mean, some guys are a lot more conservative, and they're maybe a lot more like net net driven, or they are using big DCFs. I have no problem with that, but I still think you can get better finding scuttlebutt than doing big DCFs. But go ahead. Very good. All right. Well, before I let you out of here, I got, oh. listen, you've been, t- you've been tweeting a lot about uh, go Decker. I know you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but give us what, give us, give us your GOED thesis here. I, n- I never do this, but you have, been tweeting long. A- yeah, you have been, do- you have been tweeting about it a lot. So I have to ask. All right. So, so what, you know, what's what, funny what's is we were going to do the pod last week, right? It was my fault. Yeah. I tried to dial in from the beach club and it didn't work. So now I'm at, <laughs> I'm at the, I'm at the, you got me tethered to the death, died to the death here. Um, and I am, I am quite long, so I'm not trying to shrill or shill positions. I guess it's shill position. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they did a private placement. The, uh, I originally had sort of looked at the private placement. I had a friend who reached out to me about it. He was like, Hey, have you looked at this? And I was like, I wouldn't just have the 10 foot pole at four to five bucks. Uh, and then, you know, I was like, very interesting. If they pull it off and there's execution, maybe the stock gets cheap and we look at it. Then I saw the deal come across the tape. It was 225 a share plus a warrant at 225. And I was like, wow. And the stock was down, I can't even, I can't even tell you. It was down 80%, 70%. And so that afternoon I was like, this is when this could be an interesting because now the stock's at $1.80 and the warrant's trading for 40 cents. So I went pretty aggressively um very aggressively uh for most people but i've been buying all the way up frankly um i have another theory which is you're probably better off averaging up into your positions than averaging down i know everyone thinks like oh if you liked it at a dollar you're gonna love it at 80. <laughs> bobby i want to ask you a question when's the last time you love the stock at 100 now it's at 70 and you're just like man load i you, you, you should, av- if you really believe in the thesis and you've checked it, you probably should average down. But for myself, I actually have done better over time in things that I've averaged up into, meaning that they've worked and I've like, you know, anyway. Got it. All right. You didn't you answer. Do, oh, you want me to you, answer? You, yeah, I want to know. No, no comment. <laughs> no comment. Oh. All right. One day, I want to do next can we do next week? I want to, I want to interview you because I want to get your philosophy. You've interviewed tons of investors and tons of like CEOs. I'd love to get, see, like for myself, like, well, I, I, talking, I mean, like, Tom, I'm not learning I mean, anything by I talking. I mean, let me tell I mean, I'll tell you like for, I mean, I, I said this on, I said this on a podcast before, so it's okay. But I mean, full disclosure, like I don't, um, I, I don't manage my a, a personal account. Oh, you index. 
Oh, no, okay. I don't, I don't, and I really don't have any money in the market at all. I only own a little no bit way. of Bitcoin. The main, wow. and the oh, main I own a little bit of Bitcoin. He says under, the, <laughs> yeah. under his breath. Yeah. Under his a little breath. bit of Bitcoin. No, but the main, I mean, look, a the main reason being, I mean, the main reason being, as you know, like I do. I, I it's hard. So many yeah. Companies. You have a, it's, it's not it, conflict, but you're talking to a lot of companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have our, we have good compliance at SNN where, you know, um, we have a 72 hour rule where you can buy and sell. 72 hours after you obviously getting nervous an interview or something like that no no it's hot in here i've I've talked about it no but like but but at the end of the day i mean the main reason i don't invest though is i I put so much time into building up our media businesses that to be the type of investor that i want to be like you like uh, like steven like everybody who i've talked to on here is you know you guys put all the time you gotta really develop into yourself. that yeah you know and i just i just don't have the time look there's so many ideas that i've come across that i know for sure for sure no one will call me next time is, yeah. well call me bobby <laughs> but, you know so i'll be on the hotline my net worth could be I'm, way I'm higher than it is but it, you know it Listen, is what it is I, I i like this 3 a.m i'm up <laughs> yeah <man. I> know. <laughs> can... thomas i got i got this up? i got this other you distressed. up I got this one distressed asset. It was the Mt. Gox competitor in 2012. You know? No, but you know, it's interesting you say that. <laughs> I have no problem with that. And you know what? I actually bring up a good point is the best investment for the most part can be in yourself. Like, you know, I really believe that to be, and I, you know, we're really getting like, you know, the best investment advice I would give people, yeah, invest in yourself, but yourself, your business. It is very hard to make high returns on investing capital in the market. Uh, and people that think you're going to retire investing in the market, like, I don't know, like you and you were, you retire investing in other people's money in the market. Sure. But like, you know, even if you compound out at 20, it's very hard to, to just like live off of that. And, and to, and, and to be fair, like it, before I made the concrete decision of like, Hey, just focus hundred percent investing yourself, investing in your own business. You know, when I was investing, I was investing in other people's convictions. And I just hated it. I knew I, you know, it, it just, I was always uncomfortable. I was looking at the stock every day. I didn't, I, because I didn't build up the thesis for myself. I was like, okay, what does this mean? But what the person that I invest, what, what do they think this means? Yeah. You know, and, what does he think I, this means? Right. Yeah. And like, this yeah, doesn't, yeah. this, this is, this is not the way I want to do this. So, you know, that's why I really think the best strategy is the one that fits best with your temperament and what, you know, for myself, I like the high octane. Uh, you know, I, 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 I like stuff that's, that's, I guess, I don't know. I don't want to say high acting. I meant to sound risky or something. And I guess it is, but it's, I really think investing in yourself is, the be- is absolutely the best thing you can do. And, you know, people that scrant, you know, there's, you know, the double your profits six months or less is like a famous book that everyone reads or talks about reading. You know, I don't know if it's like Reddit, but they talk about reading it. They talk about not spending money on non-strategic things and then overspending on strategic things. Like, I can't think of anything more strategic than yourself, like your knowledge, you know, and maybe it's not always just like overspending on a business, like, oh, I need higher production stuff, or I got to buy this new laptop because I got to have them, you know, this, you know, you convince yourself of things, but, but truly investing in yourself and the returns on investing capital from your own business are going to be almost impossible to be um, in the market. So like, that's, 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 you know, for show. That's, that's the bet I made, but uh, (laughs) yeah. All right, so Tom, we're kind of we're rounding the corner here. So I mean, for for investors that relatively new to the market, they're hearing this interview for, and they're like, "Damn, like I want I want to be that high octane guy that 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 Tom is." You know, what advice do you have for them? I mean, if you love it, dude, just go out and do it. You know, and 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 be be forgiving of yourself, but but don't be easy on yourself. Like you know, there you know this you know if you're putting real money, like you know you need to sort of. not just do the work but put in the time of you know for myself i feel like over time i made more money on ideas that are quite simple but that i just reacted very quickly and my decision making was faster and my ability to sort of to quote unquote go for the jugular as soros would say was a bit higher than than most people and that's really just with experience of being out there when i was young i probably did more work on companies and yet my returns weren't as good because i was not it's not about con- it's not about conviction. It was about like probably letting mediocre things get into the portfolio, and and also also probably taking like management stuff and being like, oh my god, this is amazing. 
interesting. Like the management's telling me this and that. <laughs> and now I'm a little like, oh, that's really interesting. And it's it's not that they're bad people. It's that, that there's an incentive for them to give you, you know, like this is basically the, the bull case. So, you know, you sort of need to set both sides. But you can't, I mean... You got to get the merch going. I mean, come on, Bobby, best in yourself. Get the merch going. I, I mean, I I'm, did I'm, I'll, I'll buy it. I, Tom, I have inquired, so it's it's coming. I'm you'll you'll get the first uh, you'll get the first uh, design, and you tell me if it's lame or cool. It Hopefully could be lame. Be cool. It could be cool. It doesn't matter, man. You just got to get it out there. It, it, I'm, I'm just. Like, I don't want to put out lame, like, lame iterate, stuff, man. Iterate. I don't. I don't want to put out lame gonna, stuff, it's not man. Be lame. It's gonna be from you. I, actually, lame. actually, the only thing I really care about with merch is that it's a comfortable shirt. I, you know, whatever it says, that's fine. But as long as it's a really comfortable shirt, like I, I know I own shirts that like I would never wear in public, but they're damn comfortable. You know what I mean? You know, you just want a comfortable shirt. I don't, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know, man. I, I don't look. I mean, I'm a, like a. This is like basically I've been wearing the same thing since I was a kid. A polo shirt. So I, so I don't have a strong view uh, on I this topic. Listen, I can't remember the last shirt I like bought from. Like I picked out. You know, like I I don't know fashion. But so anyway, so this is. I'm. I. I you gave me such insight. That's the guy who's defining the shirt in the market. <laughs> No, no. The fact that you, the fact that you're not in the market, I think that's really interesting. I, I want to, I want to, I want to break this apart. I want to hear about. We, you know, what you should do. Actually, you should think about. Gosh, well, I don't mean it. Should we do this on air? We, you know, it'd be interesting. You know, those like personal finance channels where they walk you through their personal finance. Like you're already doing finance stuff. Like why not like open it up and like break apart your business like these guys do? I think it's quite interesting. I make like a like a just. Have you ever heard that podcast startup? It's like it's like kind of like uh, that. Now you haven't heard that. Oh, oh yeah. Like the startup, the where they guys. do a podcast yeah. about their startup, yeah. and then the startup is the very yeah. meta, very meta, very meta, very. <laughs> All right, Tom. With that, it's time to you know look. You're in the Italian countryside. I know you're very, very. Uh, you're trying to get. I'm going to play there. tennis now. Yeah, you're going to play tennis now. You <laughs> I know, am. Like this is sort of God. Yeah. No. So I want to let you go. So Tom, where can people go find more information about you? Follow you on social I'm media. I'm on Twitter. And my uh, my publicist is Bobby Kraft. It's B O B B Y. <laughs> I don't know where you find him. You got clearly somewhere in like a a a, sh a ship blueprint uh, room that he's found himself in. I don't know. Yeah, my ship, my, my ship blueprint room. That's right. That's good. But uh, so you, you can find him at what? What is it? It's at Thomas Brazil, right? I, yeah, I think so. For sure. Yeah. Hold on. Let's check. Find me on Twitter. And then, uh, I mean, I have a website and I'm on LinkedIn and I don't, I don't mind either one. That's just some of the platforms like Twitter. There's an idea. I like that. That's a sizzle. They're definitely going to monetize disclosure. I'm not long anything, but I love the idea of the leaps on Twitter because you know, Twitter is great. So if someone wants to look me up on Twitter, do you, you reach up, do you talk to a lot of people over Twitter? Oh yeah. I love Twitter. That's probably my, my favorite, oh. like LinkedIn used to be, but now, um, I LinkedIn I'm, sucks, man. I mean, I, don't I even, use it for, yeah, go ahead. You were saying. No, 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 go, go, go. Come on. I don't I, learn anything I, if I talk. I, I mean, for, for me personally, I'm not a big fan of LinkedIn. You know, I mean, it, it has its, it has its use it's cases for certain things, but like, I'm just, I, I just, I'm just sick and tired of getting hit up by every person saying that they're, you know, they have the, the right Salesforce CRM strategy or, you know, uh, animated video producer. I just, I, if, if I get another one of those, I think, who knows, man. <laughs> My favorite is when they reach out to you and they've got this big like service that like a Fortune 500 company you've been working, you're like, you realize it's just me, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I just like, I, but but I've gotten. I mean, I, I get the most value out of uh, out of Twitter. I haven't really tapped the from a working perspective Instagram, but I'm. I'm I, don't know it, how to I think I think it's I think it's pretty interesting. It, it at least when I think about media, it's all about like the type of content that you're going to put in there. And I, I don't know. I I just I don't know if I'm the guy that I know how to create those like short snippets to that work in that in that in that environment, but. Twitter, I, I just, I'm, I've been a big fan of like Twitter, stock tweets, fin tweets. I mean, I don't really use stock tweets anymore, but I, but back I don't really use any of that stuff, stock, stock tweets. I like Seeking Alpha, by the way, which we're talking about it. So BAM SEC, uh, any screens are great, but I don't use screens that often. Although I do like, I, 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 Toby, Toby Carlisle, I, I get his Twitter stuff. Twitter is fantastic. 
And uh, some of the stuff, some of the sub stacks that people put out there, I really find them through Twitter. Well, the work is great. I mean, these are like international compounders that are just little great little finds. I mean, yeah, I don't know. If, you're not going to get rich quick doing any of that stuff. But, you know, some of these companies will be great little compounders. Um, yeah. 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 All right. So you can go and find, you can follow Tom on Twitter at Thomas Brazil, and that's B-R-A-Z-I-E-L. And you can also go and uh, his main website for 507 Capital. It's 507capital.com, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. Call us. We got ideas. Let's talk. Nice. All right, dude. Well, with that, I'll let you go. Always a pleasure, man. And Thanks, uh, I'll see you, I'll see you on a round table soon. Oh, yeah, bro. All right. Bye-bye. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast is brought to you by Friedman LLP, a top 40 global accounting, tax, and business consulting and advisory firm, providing a full spectrum of services for public and private companies since 1924. Contact Friedman when you will need to raise capital and adhere to U.S. standards. The Friedman Partners will work diligently with you to provide the financial assurance, regulatory, and transactional services you need. When the stakes are highest, Friedman makes sure you are well equipped. For more information and to get a Friedman free consultation, please call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com. Again, for more information and a free consultation, call 856-830-1660 or email Neil Levine at N-L-E-V-I-N-E at FriedmanLLP.com.